Welcome to another episode of Empower Apps. I'm your host, Leo Dion. Today we have with us Ben Chatelaine. Hey, Ben, how you doing? I'm doing great, Leo. How about yourself? Doing really well. So last week we had uh, Jacob Gorban on to talk about remote teams. And one of the big topics that came up was version control. And of course, the elephant in the room being Git. So I'm really glad to have you on, especially after that great talk you gave at 360 IDEV on Gitmoji, which we will get to before the end of the um, <laughs> show. So can I tell folks exactly what you do? Yeah, so I am a mobile developer at large. Um, lately, I'm doing more architecture work and actually at, acting as a product owner for my team. But that comes after, you know, uh, what, 10 or 11 years of iOS development. Uh, I've got maybe two years worth of Android development under, under my belt, but I've also worked on a lot of different platforms. Because uh, before I got into mobile, I was like, flip-flopping all over the place, even did some Microsoft work, although I don't like to talk about that, <laughs> um, you know, with .NET and stuff. But yeah, I just, I love iOS, Apple platforms, and Swift is just amazing. So yeah, love working on it. And so actually, one of the, the main things that I do, um, I work on a team of about 10 developers that is is internal to Kaiser Permanente. And we have lots of apps at Kaiser, but our team, the Mobility Center of Excellence, is sort of like the Apple review board for our own custom-built apps. So we review our own apps, like down to the code level, uh, look for security things. And there's also uh, designers who look at it and other gates. But that same team that does those reviews is my team, which I lead that team and um, uh, work we call ourselves the MDK team or mobile development kit because we have a suite of about 30 libraries, like 20 on iOS and 10 on Android that are used in our custom apps. So we are library developers and we help other developers build apps across Kaiser. How many folks are on your team? What do you say? So my core team, it's 10 developers, including myself. And then we have a scrum master and, and my boss that occasionally he's more like our, product manager type of role. Gotcha. Okay. How long have you been doing stuff with version control? Like what was the first version control system that you worked with? Oh, it was a Microsoft one back in those .NET days that I... Source safe. Source safe. That's, that was it. Visual source safe. Visual yeah. source So Because that was before team, whatever, mm -hmm. Visual Studio team. Okay. Yeah. So before that, my only experience, like I personally kept folders, uh, like when I did web development, I would always do like a copy folder, yeah. make change right. and test it out right. before I deleted it. I'll tell you, one of my first employers, I had to convince them to use, I think it was just CVS. And they were like, no, we don't need this. We don't want it's it was a really it was a tough sell surprisingly and now it's just like i went to this really great talk last year at um codemash on the history of version control and how much like there's this long history and then once you get to about 2005 like just github blew up mm -hmm. and now like everything is git like there is no mercurial or whatever other ones are out there like git github essentially propped git to be the main way yeah and there's practically no competition out there right now yeah. I mean, the only competition is which Git hosting provider are you going to use? Right, right. And even like maybe there's a few like binary type projects where it's nice to have something different. Like if you're doing major yeah. audio or video stuff, but like, yeah, Git is pretty much 
like the elephant in the room in this situation. What have you found are like the biggest challenges developers have when it comes to like using Git? So one thing I'm often surprised by is when you talk to developers and they use Git, you know, they might know some concepts and that sort of thing. But a lot of the times I'm really surprised at how they only know one tool. They only know like the uh, version control system that's baked into their IDE. Mm -hmm. And some IDEs abstract away from the details. And so when Git operations fail, those people don't know how to research it on the internet. You know, they're searching for this error in Xcode as opposed to this underlying Git error. And I I think it really helps to understand uh, the Git command line, even if you don't use it all the time. You know, I jump between GUI clients and the command line, you know, back and forth. But having that understanding is key to being able to do more um, advanced things or get yourself out of trouble. I couldn't agree with you more. I've run into so many situations with developers who just like deer in front of headlights when they get an error in Xcode. And Xcode is Quite frankly, we'll get into it, but it's not that great uh, when it comes to version control and Git. It's kind of tacked on at the end. There's one thing that Xcode does. Uh, we'll get into this later, but there's one thing that it does that I've never seen any other Git client do. Oh, man. Okay. But anyway, like, yeah, I always do everything with Terminal. Like, uh, that's pretty much 99% of what I do. On occasion, it's nice when you want to filter stuff based on conflicts or what's been changed in the folder view in Xcode, but more or less, or the diff view, but like more or less, I'm pretty much doing most of my work in the terminal. And that like really is, once you get that, it's like much easier to navigate most, most of the uh, uses out of Git. Yeah, I agree. I probably do maybe 75% of my Git in the terminal. Uh, But a lot of the times if I'm working on, you know, say you're working on some feature or some bug and then you get sidetracked and you're all of a sudden working on multiple things and you're like, okay, do I include this in this pull request or not? I really like using Tower and the, the visual diff because you can stage individual chunks and that is... That's the perfect thing because I want to fix everything all the time. But then I sometimes have to back myself down and go, okay, let's not update the version of this library in the middle of this bug fix. Uh, But I want to keep it staged. I'll finish my bug fix, switch to a clean branch, and then do that version change so I have two separate pull requests. I wanted to let you know about the great experience I've had with this host hosted on Transistor.fm. It's been absolutely fantastic and really reliable. If you are thinking about starting a new podcast, I highly recommend taking a look at Transistor. Now, I know there's a lot of free services around, but their rules about how long it takes to publish a show or doing any sort of like ad insertion, things like that are going to affect the quality of your show. But if you want to do something serious, uh, serious for your business, I would definitely take a look at Transistor and spend a few bucks there. You can actually try Transistor for free for 14 days. Give it a shot. Try that new podcast you want to do. It's definitely going to be something worth your trouble. Transistor is fantastic when it comes to building up something for your business or something you really want to grow long term. I think Transistor is going to be the host for you. They're really hands-off about the content and what they do. And they have a really great guide I'm going to share to you about how to start a podcast. You may be thinking to yourself, well, 2020 might not be a great year to 
start a podcast. But in fact, that's not true. There's been a lot of recent reports. And I know personally for myself that my podcast has grown this year, even though folks aren't exactly commuting. So take some time, go to transistor.fm and use the code empower apps. Just go transistor.fm question mark via equals empower apps links in the show notes and give transistor a shot for 14 days. And let me know what you think. I think Justin and John have done a great job and they continue to do a great job building that platform. And they have a lot of great hosts, folks like uh, cards against humanity and Kickstarter games, folks like that who really know what they're doing with their podcast. That's where they go to. They go to transistor FM. Thanks transistor for helping host this show and use the link below to give it a try for 14 days. So let's get into it. What exactly is a pull request? Because my understanding is pull requests technically aren't even part of Git, right? That's true. Okay. So pull request or a merge request is uh, really more like a commentary about the code. It's a great place to add extra context. Uh, it's you know web-based on GitHub, and you can reference other pull requests. And it's really a good place to help discuss that change because maybe you want to discuss you know with the ordering that things should get merged in especially with open source you've got new contributors coming in who might not know the standards of the project and that pull request and any automated checks or or manual checks before approval really are part of that feedback to tell the creator you know hey why don't you you know you broke a test over here or uh, why don't you pay attention to our style guide so it's really more about that social aspect of here's a change what else do i need before this is ready yeah we had uh, dave verwer on a few months ago and he was talking about how he uses pull requests for making changes to the uh, swift package index or his ios developer directory and that's like really a like a great way to use pull requests to make changes to your essentially like a database more or less without getting approval and dealing it in, like you said, in that social aspect. So totally what we talked about pull requests, but maybe we should step back and talk about exactly what developers should be doing and how they should be using branches, because that's a big part of what makes Git powerful is the fact that, you know, there's different ways of doing branching before you do mm -hmm. essentially a pull request to merge some new feature in or new version into the main branch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's relatively new that in GitHub, you can actually change your target branch. But if you're targeting, like say you branch from master and then someone tells you that needs to be based on a different branch it's possible your code is not compatible at all. You're going to be dealing with merge conflicts and that sort of thing. So it can be really difficult to, depending on, you know, especially how far those branches are from each other. Like if somebody's done a complete Swift UI rewrite and your UI doesn't exist anymore, it's like you're going to have to completely redo all that code. Right. So having a good starting point really helps make things go smoothly. So that comes down to branching strategy, you know, where do I start this branch before I start development so that my code can smoothly go in? And a lot of teams, especially inside our organization, tend to pick the most complicated thing I've ever seen. And I think one of the base things that a lot of them miss is the fact that you really need to use tags whenever it's um, a release. So when you release your code, that's a snapshot that goes out. A branch is not a snapshot. A branch is a moving target. Uh, but a tag, 
uh, although you can delete them and recreate them, that's frowned upon. It should be viewed as something permanent. That's the best way. I've never done that before. You never have done tags? No, I've never deleted a tag. Oh. in cheek. Okay. <laughs> no, I've, I've deleted tags before and I've been, it's like, uh, like that was, that, I, I missed something there. Yeah. Okay. I, I cheated once and, and deleted a tag because something went wrong with a library release and I pushed it out. And then I learned that CocoaPods caches everything at a tag level. So oh. ev- every build server that had cached that library, every developer's machine had the wrong version. So I learned my lesson and I'm like, okay, we're fixing forward. We're not, <laughs> just, I don't care if it's broken. We'll just release it another release because you can burn version numbers and there's no cost there. Right, exactly. So what are some methodologies when it comes to creating branches that you would suggest? Like one I've heard of quite a bit is GitFlow, um, but there's mm-hmm. other ones as well. Yeah, so when I first saw GitFlow, there was there was some big blog post uh, with you know pretty graphs and the three different branches. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so fantastic. Because we had ran into some problems, you know, with like conflicts on storyboards and trying to figure out how you scale a team and and deal with that sort of stuff. Um, and it looked great from the outset. There's a few things about it that I think are good in principle, but I completely disagree with the three long-running branches now. The approach that I try to follow as much as possible, and some some teams just don't want to work like this, but trunk-based development is the way to go. And I'll explain why. In trunk-based development, there is only one branch that is long-running, and uh, all other branches are temporary to some degree. You know, your feature branches for your pull requests, a release branch to prep something, and the point is delete that branch uh, when you're done with it. And the reason I'm so adamant about this is because I've seen teams that were following a GitFlow-like pattern where they're merging back and forth between branches, and I've seen GitHub topple over and fail because it couldn't figure out where the base was when it was trying to do a merge. So a whole team came to a halt because they were keeping these long-running branches. And the thing is, the same things exist in trunk-based development, but the fact that a release branch goes away makes people afraid. And in reality, say we just shipped 1.2 and we're we're hot on um, the next you know, 1.3 feature release and that's merging into master, but we're not releasing from master yet. Well, we find out there's a bug in 1.2. You create a release branch at that moment from the 1.2.0 tag and that becomes your release branch. You make your changes, you do your thing, you do your release, and then you tag it. And with the tag, it's never going to go away. Uh, so even go. if you don't merge that release branch back to master, because sometimes things have diverged too much where you just manually redo it, you create the tag. And at that point, you could delete the branch. You have the tag, so you could easily do a 1.2.2 from that tag. That's really interesting because you rarely see people check out tags and make branches out of tags, but that makes total sense. Yeah. And so that's the methodology we use on my team. We've got 10 developers and we actually have like 70 some repos of, you know, POCs and libraries, some of which we've deprecated, but there's 30 that are active and it's a little bit more than we can handle. So we're trying to promote inner source and get help on them. But we follow that approach. And when you step into a project, it's very easy to see what's going on because you have one long running branch and 
So actually, this is kind of part of our branching strategy is the naming of our branches. We don't do the get flow approach. We do developer slash ticket slash short description. And that way I know who, what, and why on every branch. I can ask somebody, hey, are you still working on that? Uh, are you stuck? Can I help you? The ticket number, I can go find the context and the the short description at the end hopefully is a clue that tells me what's going on. So let me let me get this straight. So you have you have your main branch, right? Mm-hmm. Then you have release slash one dot two, and then you might have one that's like Leo slash fourteen thirty nine slash uh button color. And that mm-hmm. might be a branch off of 1.2 because it's planned to be a fix in the next release. Correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If we're doing a hot fix, but usually all of, like, if we're doing a hot fix, we drop everything else. We, we fix it. We right. get it out there. And so usually we close that hot fix branch as fast as a feature branch. And then we're back down to just master in any, you know, work in progress branches. So you also have feature branches then as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, the named branches are the feature branches. Gotcha. Okay. So Ben, MDK123 is that JIRA number. And then, you know, Xcode 12. I'm just upgrading some project metadata. So we talked about pull requests and merging, but there's a different ways of doing merging. There's like a regular merge, right? But then mm-hmm. there's also things like a rebase and a squash. And I've started doing a little bit more squashing Mm-hmm. Uh, in GitHub, um, and I've seen advantages to it. But what, in your opinion, is the reason why you might want to not just do a regular standard merge? In order to have a nice, clean Git history, because if you only do merges, like especially if you're merging in two directions, like I have my feature branch and I do some work, but then I get stuck in that work flows over to the next sprint. Master has moved. Now I want to update it. If I merge from master, then there's lines going back and forth and the commit graph can get really confusing. The easiest way to clean that up is to rebase your branch on top of the target branch master. And what you end up with is the same code that you would have if you had done a merge but you lose the merge points. You don't have those merge branches. It's as if you just redid all that work starting from scratch. Mm. So it just basically appends the commits as opposed to making a separate additional merge commit, more or less. Exactly. Okay. And pro tip, if you run into uh, trouble, so, well, two things. When you're doing a merge uh, and you run into a conflict and you're looking at a diff editor, there's like, mine and theirs, you know, left and right. When you're doing a rebase, it's the opposite because the branch that's being modified when you're merging is the branch you're merging into. So say I'm updating my feature branch from master. My branch is the one that's being modified. If I'm doing a rebase, it's the other way around because what it's doing is it's kind of like it's creating a temporary branch by applying each commit to master, but I'm not changing master. I'm doing Ben's feature too. And then at the end of that, once they all get applied, then it uh, makes the branch point at that commit. And the best way to like really understand this, um, you know, mentally is the free online Git book because they have some really great diagrams uh, showing like the commits and the the branches and that sort of thing. 
And once you understand how simple the concept is, I think that helps with some of the fear. Because when you <laughs> you have a big feature, now you're asked to rebase it and you do that and all of a sudden you have conflicts. Nothing builds, you get scared. But if you know what's going on under the covers, it can help with some of that fear. And a real easy and safe way to do it so that you don't have to go um, digging in the ref log is just create a second branch from your branch before you do anything. Yeah, exactly. Branches are free. Like, yeah, yeah. Just create them if you ever want to do any experiments and things like that. Totally. That's the easiest way to roll back is to prepare for the rollback. Right, exactly. <laughs> so the other thing is squashing, which I've started doing. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the reason I do squash with a merge is usually I'm working on a separate branch with a lot of messy code that quite frankly doesn't compile half the time. And I just want to get this feature done and I don't want to lose it. So I'll commit and push even though it's not really working. And then eventually once it's working and I feel like it's ready to be merged, uh, I do a squash because I really don't care about the entire history and what it does and correct me if I'm wrong, but essentially it creates one single commit from all those commits and puts them into the branch you're merging into. Is that correct? That's exactly right. And one extra thing about it is um, if you do a squash locally, you can edit the commit, but the the template for that commit is the body of all the other commit messages. Yeah, you got to watch that. Yeah, I've noticed <laughs> that with pull requests on GitHub. Like, it's mm-hmm. just a mess. And I'm like, yeah, I try to keep it simple. And like mm-hmm. the thing about that, the, the drawback, obviously, is you lose that commit history. But yeah. sometimes if it's a mess and a work in progress, I don't really care and I don't want to see it. And big projects like Homebrew, they don't want that. It's so busy and there's so much churn. They want everything as simple as possible. Not, okay, I tweak the formula a little more and I tweak the formula yep. a little more. It's oh, like, yeah. no, this is yeah. the one change I need for this new version of the tool. Like I find myself playing around with the CI, whether it's like GitHub Actions or Travis, because I realized that I did mess something up in the YAML. And it's like, I don't need that like little micro commit. Like just put it in a separate branch, do a do a squash and be good. So and be done with it. What speaking of which, what are some features in like GitHub or GitLab or Bitbucket that you've seen that you think people should really be taking advantage of? Obviously besides pull requests. Pull request drafts. They're awesome. So uh, I've been waiting for this feature to come in because ever since drafts was one of the features I requested to GitHub, like a long time ago, we were like, how do we coordinate blocking this pull request so that you literally can't merge it until, you know, the author's ready for it? Because sometimes, you know, I would put up a, a pull request, it would build and everything. And, you know, someone on my team would merge it while I thought I still had time to push another commit. But if I put it up in draft mode, that's a manual way of people can see that it's there. Uh, I believe it does kick off the builds and notify people if they're um, tagged as a reviewer, but they literally can't merge it. And github.com has the ability to actually uh, make it go back to a draft, which is very key for you start working on it and then you're not done, but it might look done. Uh, If you don't want one of your teammates to merge it, you uh, switch it back to a draft. We're still waiting on the enterprise side for that feature, but okay, that's really nice to have. Yeah, I've seen it in GitHub, and I've been trying to figure out how to use it. But it sounds like like now you're giving me some ideas of how to really like take advantage of it. Yeah, the UI is a little weird because on the button to create the pull request, you have to click it, select draft, 
and then after you've selected draft, then click it again. Right. I'm like, because you, what? it's like a you have to switch the selection to draft and then push yeah. it. Yeah. So another thing I use quite a bit is stash. What exactly is a stash in Git? Now, are you talking about the stash app or a Git stash? Git stash. What is a stash? Well, hold on. What is a stash app? <laughs> um, Atlassian stash. Okay. Is is a free Git client? Okay. I think it's free. Probably. I think that's why some people use it. Um, yeah. I don't think it's that great, but I mean, to each his own. Um, okay. I like Tower, but Tower is kind of expensive. So a Git stash is awesome for if you get sidetracked on that uh, defect and I, you know, I start updating config files like editor config or, you know, the pod file. And I'm like, oh, hold on. This should be in a different pull request. If you check in the changes that you want on that current branch and leave the things you want to move to a different branch in your working copy, then you can stash all of that at once. It's a snapshot actually behind the scenes in, in Git, it's like this little special branch whose name right. is stash zero stash one, and you can actually list them and, and diff them, but they don't get pushed, right? They don't. Okay. I've thought about making an app to do that because I've left important bits of code on my machine at home when I went into the <laughs> office back when that was a thing. And I'm like, crap. So I actually have the a proof of concept of this app that would sync them across uh, machines that I can do f- when I'm on my laptop across the house. And it just connects into my other machine, <laughs> pops that stash off. So we have a dirty working copy or no, wait, other way around. It takes a dirty working copy creates a stash, uses the stash to create a um, a bundle. There's this thing called a git bundle, which is like just a handful of commits. Okay. And then uh, zip that up, move it over to the other machine and undo it and add it as a stash on the other side. I mean, but stash is really like a junk drawer, essentially, right? Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And then like the way I essentially use it is it's a quick shortcut for me to just unwind without necessarily losing anything and going back to whatever, whatever was the last commit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Cause there's occasion where I'll have to pop, but it's pretty rare. Usually it's like, once I stash it, it's like, I really don't care about it. Yeah. Maybe one out of 10 times these days, I actually keep it. Yeah. Right. So obviously you talked about Cocoa pods and, you know, Swift package manager, Carthage, things like that. But mm-hmm. unfortunately there have been projects, iOS projects, which have another way of dealing with dependencies that's submodules. Oh yes. So they're not perfect. They're okay, but we're all going to have to deal with them at some time. What are some like tips you have when you have to deal with a project that is using submodules? So I do a lot on the command line. And so I, I create a lot of um, aliases or actually functions in, I use fish shell. Okay. And so I've ended up creating one that's Suri, S-U-R-I, uh, submodule update recursive init. <laughs> because yes, I know that one. If you forget the recursive and that submodule has submodules, then you get all these errors. And So and a submodule, for those who don't know, it's basically a way connecting to Git repos together. So like you would have a Git repo where you have a dependency on another Git repo and you create a folder and that connects with another Git repo essentially. And like, yeah, like you're saying, you have to do recursive because otherwise if that submodule has submodules inside it, yes, mm-hmm. you're going to screw yourself. 
So my introduction to Git submodules was when I started contributing to the open source library Objective Git. Long time ago, I had a fantasy that I was going to build a Git client for an iPad. And then I started working on Objective Git and, you know, it builds OpenSSL. But the thing is, Objective Git is just an Objective C layer on top of libgit2, which is what the GitHub desktop app used to use. So libgit2 is a submodule under there. And and that's like a C++ library, right? Yeah, that's yeah. C or C++. Yeah, um, something like that. Yeah, and it's the most horrendous thing to try and go figure out, okay, what version of that other library does this ugly hash correspond to? And I spent like hours trying to figure out, okay, at this date we updated to this hash, but where is that? And And I think like that's been my biggest challenge because I know they added branches recently to some modules, but it doesn't work that great. Like, yeah, it like works half the time, but it isn't really like, cause, cause when you commit and push, correct me if I'm wrong on a parent repo, like it also pushes, it pushes like the commit hash as opposed to like the branch that you want to connect it to. Yeah, that's, that's correct. In the Git metadata, if you go into the .git folder, there's like a submodules folder. The actual file that gets checked in or checked out, I guess, when <sighs> it's confusing how this works, but uh, <laughs> the, the data is just a hash. Right. So the branch aspect is helps when you're updating dependencies. It'll use that branch and then go find the latest commit. But then anyway, so that's <laughs> that's a hard reference um, or, right. or a, a reference. A symbolic reference in Git is any any of the names, so a branch, a tag, a remote. Those are much easier to understand for humans, and plus you have um, you don't know how bad is this branch without knowing more behind it. Mm-hmm. That's why I really like using versions, and you know even though semantic versions aren't perfect, it gives you a lot more information about how risky this change is. Is it bigger than the last one? You can't tell by looking at a hash. A version right. number you can tell right away. Right. Hey, folks. So here's the thing. You're probably thinking to yourself, I want to build a brand new app. Or maybe you already have an app in the App Store. I think now is probably the time you're going to want to really optimize that app in the App Store. And what I mean by that, make it easy for people to find it and for people to download it. It's one thing that... You can build this great app for the iPhone 12 or iOS 14 or watch OS 7. It's another thing being able to help folks who have their brand new iPhone or their hand-me-down being able to find all these new apps. And this is where App Figures really comes in. They give you everything you need to do this all in one place. So if you have a really good idea or an app idea and you want to see how many people are searching for that, App Figures is going to be your spot. If you already have an app in the App Store and you want to see what words you need to use or what terms you need to use so that people can find you easily, App Figures is for you. And it's really easy. All you have to do is use their promo code Empower3030 to get 30% off for the next three months. That's it. That's not asking a lot. And App Figures, they don't just have this really great universal analytics dashboard. They also provide a lot of other great App Store tools for optimization. And that's really the name of the game. That's going to improve your visibility, and that's going to help you find more users. AppFigures has more than a decade of providing mobile analytics and insights. And they also have this new tool called the Competitor Intelligence Dashboard. And that allows you to track 
competitor downloads and understand what strategies you're going to use so that you can grow your bottom line. That's the thing. You can have a great idea. You can get users maybe by personally reaching out to them. But if you can improve your visibility on the App Store, that's really the name of the game. So go ahead, head over to appfigures.com to try AppFigures for free. If you like it, both the new and existing customers can use the special code EMPOWER3030 to get 30% off for the next three months. So go ahead, give it a shot, and let me know what you think. And if you need any help, try out some of those new app teardowns that Ariel has been doing. They've been fantastic, and they've been really providing a lot of help to me, and I think to a lot of folks, to what they need to do to get their App Store apps up and working. So go ahead and try it out with Empower 3030, get 30% off for the next three months, or try the link in the show notes below. Thank you, AppFigures, for sponsoring our show. What are some other ways that you would suggest maybe dealing with dependencies if you're like actively working on the dependencies while you're working on the product? Mm-hmm. So one approach that seems to be somewhat common, at least like at Apple and, and some bigger companies, is they just shove everything in the project. I actually disagree with that in most cases because, I mean, part of the fear of shoving all your dependencies, like an open source one, is what happened to uh, NPM when that developer deleted his thing, right. all of his libraries, and pulled them off Node Package Manager a few years ago. So anything that depends on that fails. So if you check it into your project, you're vendoring it, you're saving a copy of that. Uh, We actually have our own solution for uh, cloning copies of open source internally, mostly for speed and some complexity behind um, some of our contractors can't access outside resources while they're on our network and stuff like that. So we sort of have a mirror repo of all the open source that we use, which is kind of nice. Um, It's a pain when it breaks, but there are other mechanisms like um, our Android developers. um, We use Artifactory to mirror all binaries that uh, they use from outside. So that way they're on network, they're faster to access. And even if somebody were to delete their stuff, we still have a copy of it. Uh, So there's that aspect to it. Um, other reasons why I've seen people n- try to just put all their dependencies in their code, like say with CocoaPods, checking in the pods folder. I believe in not checking in that folder because you can just run pod install and you right. get everything back. I agree. Yes. Yeah. Car- with yeah, Carthage, CocoaPods with package, like all that stuff should just be part of the process of checking out the code. But um, I maintain a, an open source library called Maz, which is a command line for the Mac App Store. Um, I inherited yes, it. From I know that. that. It's a great app. Yeah. So I didn't make it. I've just been working on it uh, for the last few years because the original creator got hired by Apple and he now can't <laughs> write against private APIs on Mac OS. So <laughs> um, that's basically all Maz is. Well, so this is turning into a long story, but it was using Cocoa Seeds, which is kind of like a mini version of Carthage. But Cocoa Seeds is now defunct. They stopped maintaining it. And I thought, okay, I'll switch over to Cocoa Pods because that's what I know. That's what I use on iOS. Right. Maz takes like 50 seconds to build. And when I set it up for Cocoa Pods in the homebrew environment, it took 20 minutes to build. Because it has to do a lot of downloading. Well, 
the way Homebrew does an install, yes, it does a lot of downloading. It does this little, uh, it's kind of like this sandbox where it can't see that you already have the the master repo for CocoaPods installed. And this mm. was before the new CDN trunk. Uh, so it might be a lot faster now, but it would download this multi-gigabyte yeah. <laughs> specs repo. And I even hacked it to where I created a, a mini specs repo that only had like the two <laughs> specs I needed. And they're like, this okay. is such a hack. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so that was a disaster. And somebody, um, uh, Tony Arnold from Australia actually sent me a pull request that added Carthage support. And I was like, yay. Yeah. I was ready to throw the project away. But we actually do check in on the dependencies just because it has to build in that type of environment. And in that scenario, it's just much easier if the whole code base, all the dependencies are right there locally. You're not having to do extra Git commands. It speeds up the install. But you're not doing sub-modules. You're just checking in all the code. Yes. Yeah. The Carthage uh, checkouts folder is checked in. Okay. So like, for instance, my case, I'm working on a Mac app that uses some Swift packages that I'm actively working on. So those I have in a sub-module specifically because at some point... I'll sever that relationship and like just use regular Swift package manager. But for now, like I'm just using some modules because I want to actively fix bugs in those libraries while I'm working on the app. Does that seem like an okay way to go for now? Uh, so I'm sort of doing the same sort of thing. And, and I actually use a different approach where like I have this uh, pin kit library. That's a API for the um, pin board bookmark saving thing. Okay. So that's a Swift package library, and I have a command line app that's that I'm trying to use it. In my Swift package for the command line app, I specify a file path to Pinkit. So I'm not using it as a sub-module, but that only works on my local machine. So the way I use the sub-modules, I use the path, and then the path points to where the sub-module folder is. Oh, okay. So that file path points to the your external dependency folder, but then you're controlling the version using... Yeah, there you go. Yeah, so that's better for building on CI because then your CI system or someone else on your team could check it out. Um, Yeah, so I guess on that project, I'm alone, which is why I haven't had to conquer that. So (laughs) So that that makes sense. So some modules are easy as long as you're going forward. Okay. What's hard is when you're trying to do research, like, why did this fail? What version of that yeah. dependency was I using? That's where it breaks down. So if you're just doing greenfield development, it's actually fine. So we talked a bit about, well, you kind of hinted at some of the benefits of using Xcode. What mm-hmm. is it then? Okay. So I never trust an ID, especially with, with uh, checking in code. I've seen... Xcode and many other IDs fail to check in their own files that changed and they don't show you the full picture. Right. But there's one thing that Xcode does that I've never seen any um, other Git client do. So I created a, a workspace at one point that had all of our libraries in it, mainly so I could edit some metadata. Like I was trying to sync up, I think we were renaming our GitHub org and that sort of thing. In Xcode, I made a URL change to all these uh, homepage URLs and everything. And in one commit, I was able to modify 20 repos at the same time. It was the same commit message. So it actually created 20 commits in 20 repos. This one workspace could see them all. And 
So it did a multi-commit for me. And I was like, holy cow, this is going to save so much time. Right. Because otherwise, in ba- you know, you could write a bash script, I guess, but that's a pain in the neck. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, nice. Yeah. One of my interns wrote a, a Python script that um, can go through our repos, pull the code down, make a change and open a pull request. So it does a little more than that. Uh, but just using Xcode, you can make the commit uh, that does all of that. And I think you can push it all too. Then you have to go onto GitHub and open the pull request, but it's pretty neat. So as a iOS developer, there's probably two headaches we have to deal mm-hmm. with. Storyboards and Xcode projects. Yeah. Because they suck yes. as far as doing merges. What are some tips you have for developers when they're working on a team and working on like storyboards or Xcode projects at the same time. Like Xcode projects are actually more doable, but storyboards are like impossible. Yeah, they're pretty ugly. So I would say the best approach would be to craft your storyboards around features so that you can sort of have one developer working on the feature and working on that storyboard and another developer working on a you know feature next to that. And they're in different files. Um, I have one guy on my team that's um, basically using storyboards like Zibs, where every storyboard has one screen on it. And <laughs> yeah, I, I don't blame him though. Like, <laughs> honestly, like, I mean, the only thing that storyboards, well, they, they brought a lot to the table, but like, at least you can do storyboard references mm-hmm. and you can connect them. Like, as much as a headache it is, but I totally understand where he's coming from. Yeah. But um, probably the best advice now. Uh, to get out of that headache is <laughs> use Swift UI because then you end up with this tiny bit of code that's going to be much easier to deal with any kind of merge conflict as opposed to some ugly XML with weird identifiers. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's weird, like with storyboards. I don't know if you've ever looked. Like there's things you don't, you open the file, you close the file, all of a sudden you have this change. Yeah, and it touches all the metadata. And it's like, what the heck? Like, come on. <laughs> I used to have this ritual. Every time I installed a new version of Xcode, I just open up every storyboard and then commit Xcode change or Xcode version, whatever, change the storyboard. Yeah. And just have one commit of that. You know, we've talked about like Swift UI and the benefits. And I feel like version control, honestly, is one of the biggest benefits with, with Swift UI because it's actually, you can tell what the heck is going on, you know, kind of like HTML does. So on the project file, um, a couple of things, like one of the reasons I don't check in the pods folder is because the pods project is just this horrendous amount of thrash, like merge right. conflicts on that stuff. I don't want to see that because the fix every right. time is like delete it and like regenerate it. You recreate so it. Yeah. Why track it at all? Uh, I just don't want the headache, but for your own project, a couple of things, if you, if you create run scripts with custom logic in it, I've gotten to the point where if it's anything more than a single line, I always create an external shell script and reference that shell script from Xcode because what gets checked into the Xcode project is a single string with backslash N. So a big fancy, you know, formatted shell script ends up being this horrendous line and you can't diff it because it's one line. Yeah. Between create a scripts folder and then you put the scripts in there. That's essentially what I've started doing. And then like any external dependency, I might either use like a mint file or a brew file or something. So that way, Hey, you just need to run the installer for these pre dependencies in order to make sure, you know, whatever scripts you're running, they actually, actually work. You know, I've even gotten into, um, 
uh, using make files now to try and uh, simplify the scripts. So on Maz, actually, I have a make file that's just a front end for all the scripts that are there. So that way, the make file is kind of a coordinator of scripts. Yeah. Yep. That makes total sense. One thing I've started looking at is not checking in even the Xcode project and looking at stuff like uh, Xcode Gen by uh, Giannis Kolb, mm-hmm. things like that, that just like eliminate a lot of the complexity of what Xcode projects bring that just you don't care about. Yeah, there's this other one called Tuist. Uh, yeah, that's that's what Tuist uses, I believe. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it's fantastic. And yes. I know there's a lot of other ones out there too, like Facebook has one and, and stuff for for building Xcode projects because mm-hmm. um, they can be a mess. Yeah, they can. What are some other benefits to using Xcode when it comes to like version control um, or tips that you might have for, for Xcode and Swift developers? Well, it's actually, you know, I haven't been working with Swift packages for too long, um, mostly because... You know, they didn't have resources. So really, that's kind of a showstopper for our libraries. We're waiting for, you know, resource support, which is still not working. Yeah. Okay. I know binaries work, but I'm not, I haven't been following the, the stuff with resources. Yeah, it works fine for Linux or Mac OS command line. Um, the resources work. Um, I actually had um, steps in my make file that would copy things around uh, so that like my test JSON files would get copied to the place where the test could pick them up and, you know, do their thing. And then when I switched to um, using the copy thing in the Swift Package Manager. So let me qualify this. It works through Swift Package Manager, the, mm, the okay. copying. But what doesn't work is when you generate an Xcode project, there's no corresponding copy file phase from the package definition. And that just blows my mind. But that's what we got with this release. I'm not sure where that is as far as being tracked, but... Right. Oh, adding packages through the Xcode interface is fantastic. Um, I love how easy it is to kind of browse repos and, and pull things down. So I'm actually really excited about the future of the Swift Package Manager. I think it's almost ready to use. Um, and and that integration with um, online browsing of... of um, the repos is really helpful. Yeah. And I'm thinking we're probably going to get more metadata and things like that, more integration with package mm-hmm. indexes, because I think that's just the only thing that's, that's really missing is understanding who it supports, what and when I'd love to see a, some kind of plug in there where you could search, um, Dave Verwer's, uh, package index. So, yeah. Right. Cause I know Sven's added a lot of CI stuff to see what OS's support what and, and it's been fantastic. Yeah. And they're, uh, they even like call out like the different versions of Swift that it's compatible with, which is mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah. Fantastic. Before we close out, um, there's a couple of things I wanted to talk about. Commit messages. What are some tips for developers who are need to create some really good commit messages Mm -hmm. so future developers can understand what the heck is going on. So I have a very personal relationship with my uh, Git commit messages, which is why I've spent so much time crafting them. You know, you really have to think about, so it's back to um, one of the GitHub guys. um, I'm forgetting the former CEO. I think it's Mojambo. He he basically had a guide for... uh, how to craft commit messages, which is first person imperative. Uh, So instead of saying, you know, this commit fixes, blah, 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 blah. Don't do sentences, just do a 
like I almost always fixes blah, yeah, blah, blah. I start with a verb. Okay. You know, uh, that, that imperative format because, and the best way to v- think about that get commissioned commit message when you're in the middle of a conflict in the middle of a merge you're trying to get stuff done and things break you want to know what the heck was this change doing and you want to see fixes this you know adds that uh just that short message and so the recommendations are usually 50 characters or less on that first line and if you have more mm-hmm. uh have an empty space okay with as much body as you want. I break that 50 character, you know, somewhat frequently, but um, I try and keep it brief. Um, so like never more than a hundred characters. But really when you think about it, you know, that the theme of that commit is, is what the Gitmoji side is about. It's about like, what am I, what's the type of change that I'm making? You know, yeah, I added this file, but why? Am I doing that in order to fix CI? Am I adding a test? Am I fixing a bug? And I love the color of an emoji character, you know, all lined up in a history where I can just scan it because me as a uh, library uh, developer, when I'm going to release something, I'm trying to decide what is that version number? Did we do any breaking changes? Did we add any new APIs? Or was it just bug fixes? And, you know, that tells me whether it's major, minor, or patch version that needs to change. So I just scan quickly, look for the the boom. If I see that, we've got to do a major version. If I see some sparkles, then that's a new feature and probably a minor version. So does that go at the beginning of your GitHub message or yes. your Git commit, excuse me? Yeah. So the convention I use is I put an emoji character, a space, and then that verb. Verb. Okay. Very interesting. Okay. Do you have some examples maybe we can post in the show notes? I have tons because all my commits have emoji in there, except for the auto-generated ones. We'll post that link to your GitHub account and folks can look there. I really like this. I really need to start using these Gitmojis. How do you do it if you're doing a commit in the terminal, though? So uh, lately, I've I've just been using the macOS uh, character picker. Okay. Uh, which is super handy because A, it's free, and uh, B, it has the like up to uh, 28 or, or 32 frequently used ones. Okay. And if you start using Gitmoji, you'll find that of the 60 or some that are out there, there's about 10 you're probably using frequently. And those 10 are going to be in your remembered history. Yeah. You see, oh boy. Okay, you got to stop me because now I'm like, oh, I wonder if there's a way I can create a script so that'll automatically create a <laughs> Git message. Nope, nope, Leo, stop, stop. Okay. Well, if you want that, the Gitmoji node module does that. You can search, okay. you can filter, or you can have it create your commit for you. And you can okay. like interactively search. Very uh, cool. But yeah, I have a, a mechanical keyboard that's programmable. So I have a, a key on there that's programmed to my emoji fly out gotcha yeah, i see that on the cli and then you have the oh so you have like different key combos for different emojis yeah well i mean okay i, I only have the the what is it command control space bound and then i usually just use the arrows to pick one of the recent ones <sighs> nice what else did you want to talk about before we close out <laughs> so you know thinking back to when like i started using git when i was an independent 
iOS developer. I, I quit my job uh, right at the start of the app store and started making apps with my brother-in-law. And, you know, back then in 2009 was, um, or 2008, 2009 was when GitHub was really starting to grow. And there was this debate about whether Mercurial or Bizarre yes, or better. Yes. Mercurial is arguably faster in some ways, uh, but I just saw the convenience of GitHub as totally shadowing that. So I did try Mercurial for a little while, but um, after using GitHub and, and the web interface, I was like, wow, this is awesome. So I started working for Kaiser Permanente because my apps weren't selling very good. There was by then maybe 200 copies of each. Um, so I needed something <laughs> to pay the bills. And we were using Subversion. And Subversion was great, except for it didn't really strive to be much. It's right. Uh, call sign or, or motto is a better CVS. And we had two teams of about eight developers apiece, and I was lead of one, and um, my colleague Boris was lead of the other. And he and I, every time we had you know a release we were getting ready for, we would spend two days trying to merge all this code together. And that all just went away when we ended up using Git later on on future projects. Like I would do giant merges myself uh, because it was trivially easy. And even at one point, amazing. Yeah, it is. We had one repo that had both iOS and Android in it. And then during Christmas vacation, you know, some Android developer right before vacation had made a, a mistake and broke something on the iOS side and they wanted to split it. And with Git, you can, um, I think it was the filter branch command. There's more performant ways to do it, but the basics are creating a new Git repo by filtering and only including a specific branch. So I took that giant repo and split it into two separate projects so that the teams could scale and not step on each other's toes. And it was surprisingly easy to do with Git. There was one time I, I scrubbed, you know, like you would delete passwords. I deleted the pods folder out of a couple projects because a giant binary dependency had gotten checked in and every version of that, it, it had gotten up to, it was taking four gigabytes of space in the repo and developers would wait like two hours to do a fresh clone. And so we pruned all that from history uh, using some similar commands. Yep. Yeah. I've had to do that before, like accidentally check in a key or password or something like those tools are really amazing. That's one thing I will say is folks should definitely check out uh, getting a good, healthy Git ignore file to make sure stuff like that doesn't happen. Cause I've people check. I, I don't think people check in pods because they uh, want to. I think they just do it because they don't like really notice that they shouldn't be checking in that stuff. So I know Toptal has a really good tool for building uh, Git ignore files that I'll post in the show notes as well. Anything else before we close out? So I could give you a bunch of links to uh, my fish functions that are most useful that yep, have like. We'll put those in the show in. notes. Um, like I have one for ignore. I can just type ignore and then some file names and it just auto adds it to the git ignore. Nice. It also sorts them automatically. I've gotten away from commenting my git ignore. I'm just like, I just want it sorted so that I can just look through it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And where can people find you online, Ben? Um, I'm everywhere under the alias Fatblat. So GitHub, Twitter, those are probably the best two places to hit me up. Although I am going to be streaming on Twitch um, some DJ sets of drum and bass soon after my Is that going to be the same name? Yeah, twitch.tv slash fatblat. Awesome. 
it'll be good background music while I'm doing working on Xcode. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a really uh, great episode. It's an awesome topic. I'm finally g- glad that we got to cover. Thank you yeah. so much. Thanks for having me. People can find me online at Leo G Dion on Twitter and GitHub. And my company is bright digit. Thank you so much for coming on and listening to our episode. Please give us a review on iTunes or Apple podcast or Google podcast, wherever you find us. Thank you again. And we look forward to talking to you later. Yeah. 